0: Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. It's great to be with you. So we thought we were ready for it, but neither of us were. I think this question had been provoked by a funeral that morning. I'd taken it and he'd attended it. But it was obviously something that he's been thinking about a lot. Then came another question. How do you cope with death? You see so much of it. You're around grieving people all the time. How do you know what to say? I never know what to say. So... I just stay quiet. And these questions confirm something that I've thought for a while. Death is a taboo subject in our society. We hardly ever talk about death. And when we do, we do this uh, video. hope you're having a good morning and enjoying the leadership of others in the church. Let's have a look at this passage. I was stopped by an unexpected question yesterday. I was walking past my neighbor's house when, without warning, he called out to me, Andrew! What do you think about death? Now, this caught me off guard a little. And while I was just forming a response in my mind, he continued. When my wife was dying, we can't hide it behind a screen of euphemisms. We talk about loved ones passing away. We speak of funeral parlours as chapels of rest. We eulogise about the dearly departed. We literally try to never say the word dead. But sadly, the more that we've hidden death, the more confused we have become. As my neighbour's question showed, we've lost touch with its reality. So let us think about that reality a little more. When my neighbour told me that he was not prepared for the loss of his wife, what he was saying was that he was not prepared for the pain. He was not prepared for that yawning chasm in his life that can never be filled, or the aching heart that 10 years on still cannot be soothed. Death hurts, it really hurts. And the reason it hurts so much is because of the value of the life that was there in the first place. When we are bereaved, we have lost someone truly precious. But where does that value come from? To answer that we need to turn to the early chapters of Genesis for there we learn three important lessons. First of all human life is a gift from God. The Bible declares that it was God who made the heavens and the earth and he created men and women and speaking of the first man Adam we read this in Genesis 2 7. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Through that poetic language, we learn a vital truth. All life comes from God. He is personally involved in every birth. He is the one who supplies the breath. Life then is not something that we automatically have. Neither is it some sort of natural right Life is always a gift from God. And it's because God alone is the one who gives life that God alone is the one who has the right to take it away. The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. To murder someone is to take life away from them. And this is an act simply beyond our authority. So all human life is a gift from God. The second thing that we learn in the early chapters of Genesis is that all human life is special. And there is one very specific reason for why this is the case. Genesis tells us that we are all made in the image of God. This is Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, being made in God's image does not mean that God is Physically looks like us with eyes and nose and teeth, though Jesus has these, of course. Now, being made in the image of God means that we have been made with the incredible potential to relate to God on a personal level. This is something that no other animal, vegetable, mineral can do. And it's through our relationship with God that we come to bear some of his characteristics. Human beings are naturally creative. We are born with an innate sense of justice. We instinctively want to be loved and to love. And it's as we grow up and work out these characteristics that we come to be God's representatives in the world. We are made in God's image so that we can look after creation and bless the people around us. Did you know It is illegal in this country to burn currency or deface stamps with the king's image on it. That is because when we do it, it's as if we're defacing him. And so too it is with human beings. To kill another human being is to destroy something patterned after God and someone close to God's heart. And it's because each human being is so special to God that to kill them deeply upsets and offends him. The third thing that the opening chapters of Genesis teach us is that all human life is communal. We've just said that we were made in the image of God. And we know that though one being, God is made up of three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. God is three people in such close relationship who who love each other so much that they can be referred to as one. What this means, then, is that we as human beings best resemble the image of God when we are in loving relationship with other people, particularly through marriage and family and friendship. When Genesis is describing the creation of Eve, the first woman, we read these words in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What is being described there is something that we all know deep down. No human being can live a completely isolated life. Human beings are made to live together, to complement one another, to contribute to one another. In fact, we need each other. And what this means then is that every death, particularly when it's not replaced by a new life, makes a community weaker. And murder is the most brutal breach possible of the interlocking social life that we have together. So the sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. It is a command that clearly provides healthy limits to any society, and no nation or culture on earth would disagree with this. Yet This is not just about the negative concept, God being against murder. It is also affirming a wonderfully positive truth. Every life, without exception, has unique value. One thing is for sure, if we treat the death or the harm or the suffering of another person as something of little consequence, we are committing a grievous crime against the God who loves that person. Now, I'm guessing that most of us are currently sitting rather comfortably we read this commandment and we let out a sigh of relief. At last, we think, here's one I can tick off easily. I've never murdered anyone. But let's hang on a minute. For the Bible goes on to suggest that breaking this sixth commandment is not as far from us as we might like to think. Let me explain by examining for a moment the root cause of murder. In Genesis 4, The story of a very normal family soon becomes the story of the world's first murder as Cain kills his brother Abel. Now, I don't know how well you know this story. But let me just begin by saying that this story is not in the Bible just to illustrate how bad some particularly wicked people can get. No, not at all. This story is there to emphasize the fact that every single one of us could end up like Cain the story goes like this. The two brothers come to bring an offering to God. Cain brings some of the fruit from the ground. Abel brings the best portion of his farm animals. Now, on receiving these, God looks with favour on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. Now, this is not because God is a meat lover who is opposed to vegetarians. No, not at all. What counts here is the attitude with which the offerings are given. Cain was seemingly reluctant, Abel was generous and it was Abel's motivation that was acceptable to God. Now God's judgment on this matter annoyed Cain. It's fair to say that his pride was more than a little hurt. And the Bible then tells us what happens next. Genesis 4, 5 to 7. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, notice something very important here. On seeing Cain's less than positive reaction, God offers him the possibility to change his attitude. And at the same time, he also gives him a warning of the great peril that his anger was leading him into. But what did Cain do with that urgent warning? He ignored it. Instead of looking to God in repentance, he immediately takes his brother off into a field and strikes him dead. Here then quite clearly is the root cause of all murder. It is anger. In Cain's case, hurt pride and envy and a sense of injustice led to anger. And when that anger then refused to heed warnings real trouble lay ahead. Now I'd like us to fast forward and tie this to some teaching Jesus gave. In his great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus specifically interpreted the sixth commandment to his disciples. And when he did so, a warning about anger was also at the heart of his message. This is Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Now, I appreciate that we do not hear people running around shouting Raka at each other today, do we? Raka is an old Aramaic insult. It literally means empty head or fool. But it comes with such hostile contempt. It implies that the person you are insulting does not deserve to live. I wish you'd never been born would be the rough equivalent today. Or do me a favor and drop dead. Shouting Rekar and the English equivalents at someone else is a complete refusal to accept that that person's life has intrinsic value. That despite your annoyance with them, they might be special and loved by God, as well as a gift to their family and community. It is a denial of all that we thought about a few moments ago. What Jesus is eloquently teaching here, then, is that murder is the ultimate and most destructive form of human anger. And if any of our anger is left unchecked, murder is the natural place that it will end up. God doesn't just want to stop murder. He wants to go further and stop the things in our (laughs) thought life that act as the seeds of murder. Or to put it in other words... The crime of murder is not just the physical shedding of blood. It is the anger and the hatred that lead up to it as well. So if we've ever wanted another person dead, or even wished harm come upon them, we have strayed into the field of this commandment. And with that realisation, suddenly none of us are sitting so comfortably, are we? Far from being a commandment that we can tick off and forget about, this one Like all the others, applies to us all. So, having realised that, we'll now try and finish this sermon in the most practical and helpful way that we can. We're going to look for some wise advice on how we can deal with the anger that we feel. Just before we begin, I'd like to make clear that there are times in our lives where it is absolutely right to be angry. Anger is a, a natural emotion that shows that we care. Anger is the emotion that drives us to take action to prevent harm to ourselves and to others. Imagine if we didn't get angry when someone threatened someone we loved or we saw them mistreating the vulnerable. To not get angry in those situations would be utterly wrong and wholly inhuman. In the Bible, the word anger appears 455 times. On 375 of those occasions, it refers to God. You see, our God is perfectly holy and just, so he will get angry at lies and hypocrisy and when his beloved people are harmed. There is such a thing as righteous anger. The problem is that whereas God is perfect and always deals with his anger in the right way, we are not, and often things go wrong. The philosopher Aristotle once said anyone can be angry that's easy but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way that is not easy. Oh how right he was. We all struggle with our anger at times we all need help and advice on how to deal with it even when that anger comes from a righteous source. So here then are four simple tips on handling our anger. Number one, count to 10. When Cain was angry, God gave him a warning and an opportunity to change course. But he was just too angry to take it. After God had spoken, there was no gap and no space for Cain to reflect. He just went straight out and murdered his brother. We all need to realize that when we are angry, we are in the wrong frame of mind to analyze anything. Anger literally clouds our outlook. The red mist comes down. We should try to take steps in these situations to actively slow ourselves down. We can count to 10 before speaking. We can write out a whole email of rage, sit on it overnight and then delete it in the morning before sending it. We can leave a meeting, go for a walk around the block and then come back to it. I'm sure some of us do these things already. The second tip is not to delay dealing with a disagreement and involve others if necessary. Following the teaching from Jesus that we read earlier, he actually went on to say that dealing with anger was more important than public worship. If we have an issue with someone, we should put our offerings down, leave church and go and sort it out. In Ephesians 4:26, we read the advice that we should not go to sleep on an argument. Instead, where possible, we should sort things out before we go to bed. This urgency is to stop resentment festering and becoming something much worse. Anger can become rage when there is a long delay. Now, going to see someone who we have a disagreement with does not mean just going and venting at them. It doesn't mean going and giving them a good talking to No, it means taking the chance to hear their side of the story, to listen to their point of view, for then you'll have earned the right to express yours. And if we approach meetings like this with humility and respect, big issues can be nipped in the bud. Of course, this is often not an easy thing to do. None of us like confrontation, so it may help to take someone with us. Not so that we have someone to gang up with us, so we have someone who will help us to listen and take things in. Jesus described taking someone with us when challenging an injustice like this in his teaching on the subject in Matthew 18. The third tip is for us to forgive quickly and not bear grudges. Actually, the Bible is very clear on this. We are never to take vengeance. Only God can do that, for only he would do it fairly in romans twelve nineteen it says, "Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. for it is written, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay," says the Lord. Our job then is to forgive and not allow ourselves to be eaten up by the desire for revenge. But forgiveness never happens just because we feel like it. It always takes a conscious choice. Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, tried to never bear grudges. On one occasion, she was reminded by a friend of a wrong done to her many years earlier. Don't you remember? asked the friend. No, replied Clara firmly. I distinctly remember forgetting that. Anger grows and festers in an atmosphere of unforgiveness and revenge. But where there is forgiveness and a desire to move on... Anger can be turned into a constructive emotion that leads to changing things for the better. The final tip is this. We can turn to God in prayer. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Psalms. I don't just mean picking out the famous ones like Psalm 23. I mean reading all the others. A huge number of them are laments. A huge number of them are the psalmist raging against his situation, really pouring out his anger to God in a visceral way. Some of the Psalms are seemingly so shocking we never read them out in church. But that's not because they're wrong or they're to be ashamed of. Rather, we must understand what is really going on. God invites us to pour our anger out to him so that we don't bottle it up. Because when we bottle up anger, we damage ourselves and we lash out at others. God is big enough to deal with us shouting at him, and he would rather we do that than hurt someone else. So when we are angry, we can turn to God in prayer. We can tell him what we feel. And then slowly we can take up a position of trust, assured that he will deal with the situation. And it's often once we've prayed and prayed for hours sometimes that we can approach a difficult situation in a way that is conducive for peace. This has been a rather long sermon, and I'm sorry for that. But we've touched on some very important issues, issues that are relevant to us all. The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. And we have realised that this is a command that forces us to recognise the huge value in every human life. It is anger that leads us to devalue others in many different ways. But they're all upsetting to God. We need to learn to deal with anger well. I would like to now end with a word of hope. And assurance two thousand years ago god gave up his son to be murdered so that we could have life god used his anger with sin to make the way to forgive it god channeled his anger at death to make the way for eternal life if we put our trust in jesus we can be assured that all those times our anger has got out of control can be forgiven we need not carry the guilt or the shame any longer. If we put our trust in Jesus, we need not fear death anymore, but can be assured of life and peace the other side. And if we take the cross seriously today, it will begin to transform us as people. We will move from those who hate and whose desire is to take life to those who love and want to give life. It is not easy to be a peacemaker in this world. But if we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives, he will change us from the inside out and make us more like our Saviour Jesus. May this be a blessing to us today.